What if you make a choice, but it isn't something that's a nail on the coffin that the spirit can never enter again? What if the baby finds another portal? There's all these questions that are just a part of the great beyond, a part of divinity's knowledge that we likely won't have access to until we die or until we're there, until we have some experience with that on our own. But I did feel the presence of my daughter after my abortion. I do believe she found another way here. And again, that doesn't suppose that we take all quote, responsibility off of people and their choices of whether or not to have an abortion. I would never say that to someone to be like, so don't worry about it, because it was the single most traumatic and unhappy experience I've ever had in my entire life. This is the Honest Discourse podcast, where we host loving and authentic conversations that explore truth and exemplify meaningful interactions within our generation. This podcast is created by Anchored North, and our mission is to make captivating, honest, and shareable videos that explore mankind's greatest need, redemption through Jesus. On today's episode, we'll be moderating a discussion between Brenda, host of God is Gray on YouTube and Apple Podcasts, and Laura Lynn, the executive director of Speak for the Unborn. The purpose of this discourse is not to establish middle ground between both conversationalists, but to explore what is true. As Christians, we believe that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. We believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We believe that the Holy Spirit transforms lives, and we believe that God's way is genuinely the best way. We also recognize that there are many viewpoints out there, and today we're discussing differing positions on abortion and sexuality. Our guests today, Brenda and Laurelyn, have kindly accepted our invitation to voice their perspectives. Although our organization believes what the Bible teaches regarding the value of human life and sexuality, we gratefully commend both of them for choosing to have this discussion. In a time when people like to group with their tribes and demonize other viewpoints, we can only celebrate their decision to speak to one another in a loving and personal way. The narratives of both conversationalists will be represented in an equal and authentic manner, and listeners will greatly benefit from hearing both of their stories and perspectives. With that said, let's get started. All right, Brenda, Laurelyn, thank you so much for being a part of this. We cannot commend you to enough for being willing to dive into one another's worlds and into one another's stories. And we're so excited for the conversation that's ahead. So with that, Brenda, go ahead and introduce yourself, share your story, and then Laurelyn, you'll do the same, and we'll go from there. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for uh, conducting this conversation. Thank you for bringing on a fellow woman. I constantly debate men, and I'm like, can, can I talk to a woman? So thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that said, um, my name is Brenda Marie Davies. I am the creator of the podcast and YouTube channel God is Gray, where I advocate for sex-positive, LGBTQ-affirming, science-believing, intellectual-affirming Christianity. And my story is long, but I'll keep it short. I basically grew up as a casual Catholic, and then at 12 years old, I began going to a non-denominational evangelical Christian church. That is the first time I learned God cries when you masturbate, that I learned that if I wear spaghetti straps, Lord knows what a man's prone to do to my body, that I can cause men to stumble in sin, what we now are referring to as purity culture. I didn't have that language back then. Back then it was just presented as 
what we need to do to please God. And I fell hook, line, and sinker for all of it because I've always been passionately in love with Jesus. Ever since I was a little girl, I just remember his name having so much resonance in my spirit. I prayed all the time. It was earnest and and pure and lovely, and I felt loved by God. And it took many years for me to recognize and realize that I believe the evangelical church built an idol to sexual purity. There's idolatry when it comes to policing our sexuality, our bodies, telling us that we can't trust our hearts, our hearts are deceitful, our flesh is evil, doing all of this disembodying work to make me feel as though I didn't have ownership over my own life or my own body. And it was all about pleasing God and and more than that, pleasing men and making sure that I was behaving in an appropriate way that wasn't causing men to look at me in a lustful manner. So all of this was very sex-based, and from my work that I do, I realize I am not alone. Millions of us were exposed to Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye and books just like that that really proposed that God loves virgins, (laughs) that if you are not married, that you are to be a virgin, and if you get married, it's to be in a heterosexual, cis, you know, heteronormative relationship. So... Now, in my work, it's taken me so long to break out of that, and that's why we use the word deconstruct, which, again, wasn't language I had then. At the time, I called it my prodigal son journey because I did everything as perfectly as possible. I made anti-abortion artwork in my high school class. I had a nine-month pregnant woman uh, made of paper mache, and she was holding a gun to her belly, and I called it abortion. I was arguing Kent Hovind apologetics with my biology teacher. I was praying on the front lawn of my school. And it was all really based in this passionate love that I had for Jesus, combined with the words of my evangelical teachers telling me this is what God required for me to have the love of God and to spread the love of God. So by the time I got married, I'd saved myself. And it turned out that my husband had been cheating on me the whole time we were dating. So that was my first really major heartbreak. And when that happened, though, it it caused a major reckoning inside of me. And I'm so grateful for it because I'd really been white knuckling it. I wasn't actually satisfied with the way my life was going and not because I wanted to sleep with whoever I want and do whatever I want. It was because I really felt inherent pieces of myself, the way God had made me to be as a woman, were not honored and were not acceptable, were not allowed, were not lovable by God, whether that be the fact that I am bisexual, which I didn't know at the time, or just the fact that I am a leader and I have leadership qualities and I didn't want to get flung into the nursery, which is the only place that women were really permitted to teach in the churches that I went to. So all of that said, I really went on what I called a prodigal son journey, and I completely let go of everything that I had been taught. And what that looked like to me was a full thrust into hookup culture. And a lot of people misunderstand my messaging and accuse me of being some uber liberal feminist that just wants people to have sex whenever they want with whoever they want. But to the great contrary, my sexual ethic and my sexual standards, something that I call sexual integrity over purity, has actually caused me to have 
way more respect and honor for my body and the body of others than I've ever had in my entire life. And that is what I teach on my channel, how to have sexual integrity that is not dependent on being a heterosexual person, saving yourself from marriage. I think I know God's sexual ethic and what he cares about goes far beyond just those basic black and white narratives of what makes a good girl or a bad girl. So... Unfortunately, because I wasn't empowered by sex education from my school system, I had no idea about birth control or condoms. We had one day of school that taught us about sex ed, which is mind-boggling to me because sex is such an important part of life. At church, I was just taught, say no, 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 wear a white dress, say yes. And we talked about it constantly, but it wasn't actually based in education. It was never based in women's pleasure. I heard about submitting to your husband, Ephesians 5 but I never once heard about a woman's clitoris or about a woman's pleasure or our right to pleasure. So I really felt robbed. And also because I had held on to this strict narrative of say no until you wear a white dress and then my marriage had fallen apart due to infidelity, I swung like a pendulum all the way to the other side and ended up in a completely polar opposite but different and equally unhealthy state of being, which I call hookup culture. So I didn't count my numbers. I was sleeping with whoever I wanted. I really threw everything out. And what devastates me about that, I have this book back here on her knees where I wrote that entire experience, which spans like 10 years of my life, discovering my sexuality, clinging on to God for dear life, loving Jesus through it all, but feeling so lost with my sexuality and, and disempowered and abused because I was told from purity culture teachers like Lisa Bevere, she is one of them who has certain points of statement that really imply that you have lost value when you lose your virginity. And many of us come from purity culture, feel that we had lost that inherent value, especially to God and especially on our walk with Jesus. So without that belief that I was worthy, that I was still deserving of God's love, that I deserve to say, no, that hurts. I don't want to have sex like that. Or just because I'm in your bed doesn't mean that I want to do this. All of these things culminated to my self-esteem and self-worth breaking down to such a severe degree that I ended up in the most abusive relationship of my entire life. In that relationship, which I blamed myself for for so many years, up until really recently, to be honest, because it's taken so long to unpack what I call toxic theology and the way that my sexuality had been hijacked by both secular over-sexualizing of women's bodies and Christian over-sexualizing of women's like purity and piety, I just ended up with this person who was really reiterating my worthlessness. And in that relationship, I ended up becoming pregnant and he abused me into an abortion. I have said very openly that I don't put all responsibility on him. I absolutely believe that my actions are my own. But I've had a lot of debates about abortion for the past three years that I've had my channel, but I've only come out and been open about my own abortion. I think last month I made a video finally telling people, and it's in my book as well, so I knew it would inevitably come. The way I see it is that I was devastated, heartbroken. I know how painful it is to have an abortion because I was there. I also know the obstacles that I had to jump through to try to 
have care for myself and that baby that would have come forth. I know that I was in an abusive relationship with a drug addict who would have likely also abused what I believe would have been my daughter. I just had all of these things coming up against me and and just my framework in the midst of all of it. All of that said, I I worked through and processed it all on my own with my friends, with my supportive spiritual people in my life. I have not been in church for a very long time because that is not a safe space for myself and my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, women who have been shamed for sexual activity. It's not a safe place for me and I don't care to be there, but I am a Christian. I wouldn't even call myself a progressive Christian because evangelicals have hijacked the term and are trying to define it on their own and it doesn't resemble what I am anymore. So I'm just a Christian. Luckily, I'm finding my place in the world because there's more of us speaking out about this toxic theology. And when it comes to abortion, I truly, truly believe that it is inhumane to police women to criminalize abortion. I just believe it's inhumane to do that. I know, obviously, the argument that the baby has a valuable life, arguably, and that that is something we need to honor. But for me, the only humane and honorable and godly way to prevent abortion is to prevent pregnancy, not to criminalize it, not to throw women in jail, not to make them suffer, not to force them to bear their bodies like a scarlet letter until they're forced to give it up for adoption, which, by the way, I've researched in plenty, the adoption system, the foster care system, they're both disasters. If I had conceived of having a baby and thrust that baby into the foster care system, I would have no guarantee that they wouldn't end up sexually abused, molested, physically abused, imprisoned later in life. These are the results. This is what happens when we put our children into those vulnerable places because our society has not created a safe place for you to let like pass your baby over once you have it. So I'm also not buying the Christian argument of, oh, you have to do the moral thing. Just give it up for adoption. It's not that simple. And that is also an inhumane system that needs major uprooting before we can actually safely tell women that that's an option. And also, we do not provide comprehensive sex education for the men and women in our country. If we had comprehensive, mandated sex education, age-appropriate, starting at five years old, and no conservative Christians, that does not mean they're teaching our five-year-olds what anal sex is. It's age-appropriate throughout their entire lives, and it leads up into sexual activity and teaching people about safe sex and without the resources being provided to women that are in need, you know, so often you see it in those comic strips where a woman has a baby and there's all these anti-abortionists screaming, you better keep your baby. The baby comes out and they're like, well, now you're on your own. Screw you. And as someone that during the pandemic, especially I had to go on unemployment and I have had food stamps, which is, is a shameful spot to me because I work so hard for what I have and it was really humbling to have to be in that position. But um, I'm currently a single mom. I had a baby with another person and it's a fulfilling, gorgeous, beautiful experience. And I vacillate on whether or not I regret what had happened because at the end of the day, I do perceive it as a sin to have an abortion because 
I consider sin anything that causes harm. To me, obviously, an abortion does cause harm. But also, unfortunately, it it becomes necessary in our society because we are thrusting children into abstinence-only education. We're not empowering them with the knowledge they need to not get pregnant. We're pretending that we can just yell at them long enough to keep their legs closed versus actually giving them the tools that they need to make sure their bodies are safe, to make sure they're not assaulted, to make sure men and women, all genders, know how to say no. I don't want to be here. I don't want it like this. You have to wear a condom. I'm not comfortable. Without those conversations and that empowerment, we're going to continue to see rampant rates of unwanted pregnancy and therefore abortion. According to Guttmacher Institute, and I, they really need to update this because this is um, an older survey. I think it's from 2015. But 73% of abortion clients said they were Christian. And I know right now, Texas, for example, has some of the highest rates of abortion and they have abstinence-only education. Los Angeles, of the hippy-dippies and crazy liberals, we have one of the lowest abortion rates in the nation, and we have mandated comprehensive sex ed. So in short, I have been there. I've had many experiences. I was the girl making the anti-abortion artwork and yelling at people to not have abortion. I had abortion. Now I'm a sex educator, and I do not believe it is moral to criminalize women for a choice that our society has not protected them and has not given them the tools to not have to make in the first place. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here and I love that I get to have this conversation with you. So just thank you for the opportunity. And Brenda, I have watched um, some of your YouTube videos and I'm familiar with your channel and um, I'm just really excited to talk to you about this. So just a little bit about my story. Um, My name is Laura Mueller. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana with my husband, Mike, and I have three children. They're five, almost three, and then um, 10 and a half months. They're a lot of fun. Um, I'm the executive director of Speak for the Unborn, um, which is a ministry that trains and equips churches for pro-life ministry, really specifically sidewalk counseling in a way that is gospel-centered, but also winsome and compelled by love. And then kind of on the side, um, I'm a certified birth and postpartum doula and a certified perinatal personal trainer. And um, I have a practice where I serve women throughout their pregnancies to promote just overall wellness and then support and advocate for them um, during birth and help with postpartum healing. And then just so a little bit about my background, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm an only child. My parents were actually both told they could never have children. And then after 16 years of marriage, I was born. And my dad was a pastor and then transitioned to becoming um, a pretty well-known professor, author, speaker in the biblical spirituality, um, spiritual disciplines area. I really have the most incredible parents, and I realized that even more since becoming a parent myself. I, um, you know, growing up, I went to church every Sunday and Wednesday night, and I was hugely involved in my youth group as I got older. And every single night, seven days a week, my dad would read the Bible and pray and sing with us. And um, those are just some really sweet memories that I have. And But actually, I didn't become a Christian until eighth grade. 
it was just really kind of crazy how the Lord orchestrated all of it. I, I was on my school's cross country team. And one day when one of my friend's moms, who is now a dear friend of mine herself, um, was just talking about how the Christian journey is a race and kind of all the metaphors in the Bible between running and the Christian walk and something just clicked in my mind of like, wow, I, I don't walk with the Lord. I don't know what that's like. I don't, you know, I have no understanding of that. And, you know, I was a good moral kid from a Christian home, but I was not saved. So that night alone in my room, I repented, asked God for forgiveness of my sins. And I believed in the gospel really for the first time. And then when it comes to my views on abortion, you know, first and foremost, they stem from what I believe about God and what I believe about sin and, you know, what I believe about who we are created to be as his image bearers, you know, I'll share more there later, but there were also just two distinct relationships, experiences in my life that have shaped my pro-life perspective in a unique way. One is that I actually have a family member who started off as an OBGYN. He delivered babies and, um, you know, right around, I believe, you know, mid to late seventies, he became an abortionist. And so having really pro-life, pro-choice conversations, speaking from love for one another is an example I grew up around. I, I loved this family member dearly. He passed away um, actually several years ago. And, you know, my parents loved him and just their whole family. And I'm really thankful that I grew up around conversations about abortion that were loving and caring and winsome. And um, that, yeah, conversations just like we're having today were happened on a regular basis um, in my family. And then kind of on the flip side of that, I, I became even more passionate about speaking for life when I went through my three pregnancies. You know, when you when you grow babies in your womb, I think their personhood just becomes so incredibly more real than ever before. There's just something so special there about, you know, not just another body, but another soul and um, just the connection there. And, you know, even beyond that, two, two of my three children were NICU babies. My, my youngest, my 10 and a half month old, was actually born on August 29th of last year. She was two months early. I was down in Atlanta, which is like 600 miles from my house, doing ministry work. And I had a placental abruption and an emergency C-section. And we unexpectedly spent 15 weeks in Atlanta. And nine of those were in the NICU. And, um, you know, when you're in the NICU for that amount of time, you see babies who are 21, 22, 24 weeks, you know, illegal gestation for abortion in several states and several places around the world. And they are just alive and well, fully human, fully persons, um, you know, with help, of course, but they're thriving, you know, just even on a little bit more personal level. My daughter, the one who was born in Atlanta, was born with special needs. She has a chromosome 9 Q22 deletion syndrome, um, and there are only actually 36 other documented medical cases um, of her exact syndrome in medical history. So it's super rare. And, um, you know, I was reading through medical journals and various studies, just anything I could find on her condition. And I kept seeing over and over again that the reason so few cases exist to study is because so many parents choose abortion after receiving the genetic testing results and having her diagnosis. And um, I'm going to try not to cry. <laughs> I cannot even explain to you 
what a blessing my little girl is to our family, what a light she is, and how much just being her mom has completely transformed my life in the most beautiful way. And I literally just ache with sadness and heartbreak for beautiful children just like her who were not even given a chance at life. And I really just want to hug and cry with every parent who receives a diagnosis like hers and just tell them, yes, it's shocking and it's hard, but also it's going to be okay. And and not even just okay, but God is going to give you grace for every step because he is merciful and good. And it's going to be both harder and more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. But the answer is, is not abortion. There's hope in Jesus. There's hope in the gospel. And there's support um, moving forward. And so I'm really passionate about supporting parents who have received diagnoses like hers or like Down syndrome or any kind of special needs diagnosis. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that with me. You have a really beautiful story. And I'm so grateful for your very clear passion and compassion for women, even the smallest of women. And I definitely think it's a great tragedy that we see, um, quote, disabilities the way that we do. I think the medical narrative and the fear that surrounds certain diagnoses is so heart-wrenching. And I'm glad someone out like you is out in the world dispelling those myths. Like one of my friends has a baby with Down syndrome and she's just sharing her journey on Instagram because it often is an immediate death sentence for an embryo and it absolutely should not be. So thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I just really appreciate, you know, where you're coming from on a lot of what you speak out about. And, you know, it really does come from a place of compassion and from a desire to see women cared for and heard and to see abuse eradicated. And, you know, I have concerns about purity culture as well. I grew up in that. You know, yeah, I mean, what bothers me the most about that? I mean, I I do believe that sex should be designated for marriage, but um, I my concern with purity culture is it almost made, like you mentioned, women who women or men who had had sex before marriage to be less valuable, like they were permanently dirty. And I think when we look at God's grace and his mercy and just the beauty of the gospel, that there is forgiveness and there is cleansing from sin. And, you know, I I do believe that sex outside of marriage is sin, but I also believe in absolute cleansing forgiveness. I believe in absolute cleansing forgiveness of abortion. I believe, you know, any, any sin, when you find hope in Christ, it's eradicated for good. There's no permanent judgment. There's no permanent you know, distinguishing, set apart, yeah, people judging you for what's been committed in the past. If you're walking with the Lord and moving forward and just fighting, fighting sin and seeking to live for the Lord as you continue forward. All right. Thank you both for sharing and diving into one another's worlds. I love just both of what you have stated and what you've brought to the table in terms of this conversation. And I know there's much more to go, but before we get into the statements, You guys both listed that you're musical theater nerds. And as a fellow musical theater nerd, I think the highlight of my musical theater career was playing Willard in Footloose. I have to know, like, what are your favorite productions that both of you have been in? I was about to say, are we going to sing? Don't make me sing. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's just have, we'll sing harmony right now. Let's go. Ready? (laughs) Ready? God, I'm so out of practice. 
I love all of them. I really love Oliver. I was Nancy and Oliver. But I remember one time we went to like a competition and one of the notes was like, I wasn't embodying her story enough. I was 12 years old in seventh grade. And Nancy, for anyone who doesn't know, is like a hard worn sex worker in like old time London. And she's like in an abusive relationship. It was like so out of anything I could have comprehended. He was like, you really didn't really capture her essence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be hard to do. (laughs) (sighs) That's funny. Well, for me, it wasn't so much a role that I played, but I actually taught um, competitive high school show choir for a number of years. And I got to design the shows and my my last year that I taught, we actually did a James Bond themed show for an all women show choir. So it was super fun. They wore like feminine cut tuxes and we did all James Bond music and it was just, it was so much fun. I had a blast doing that show. I would have been in that choir. That sounds so fun. Yeah, it was, it was a great time. I, yes, I loved it. You just can tell there's a special like energy and joy with post musical theater kids. Uh, and <laughs> I'm like, we all have it. Just a yeah. bunch of nerds hanging out. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, with that, thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for even just being willing to have this conversation. We know it's so difficult in these days to have a conversation. And our whole model of this podcast is to discuss instead of demonize. And we're just so thankful that you both are modeling that with us today on this podcast. So with that, let's get into the statements. The Bible values human choices. Yeah. So I don't know that I, I don't necessarily agree with the word values here. Obviously, God has given us the ability to make choices. Often I feel like I have far too many choices and decisions to make. Like I wish I didn't have to pick, you know, a salad over cake most days. Um, but I, I do think, you know, God has given us minds to discern goodness from evil, sinfulness from righteousness, truth from lies. And I certainly do believe there's an objective truth. And I certainly never believe that something God values for us is choosing to sin. You know, the Lord allows us to make our own choices, but because of the influence of sin, we all make sinful and selfish choices sometimes. But I think the Bible is very clear that we'll be held accountable for the choices that we make. And, you know, it tells us at the end of Matthew 12, that at the judgment, even every idle word will be evaluated. And um, the standard of judgment will be his perfect holiness and his word. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, those who trust in him and his work will be forgiven for their simple choices. But in all life, including in our choices, the Bible tells us in verse Peter 1 16, be holy for I am holy. Yeah, I think that's a funny question, too, because I would immediately say, no, the Bible doesn't honor human choices because, like, I'm just thinking about, like, Lot's wife turning around, God forbid, and becoming a pillar of salt. (laughs) Like, she couldn't even make the choice to turn around. So, I mean, you see people being literally demolished for making their own choices in the Bible. But if a more succinct way of putting it is like, do we have free will? Maybe that's closer to the question that I would be answering or does God or spirit value our free will? 
I would say absolutely. And I agree with the statement that all choices are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And then I also always stand by the cold, hard statement of Jesus, where they were agonizing over which statements are most important and which commandments are most valuable. And Jesus said, love yourself, love God, love others. And it was that. And because I say that, I'm often accused of like a hippie dippy kind of love, like do whatever you want, whatever. Absolutely not. Because love is everything the Bible also says. Love is good. Love is holy. Love is pure. Love does not boast. Love is not prideful. That whole statement about love that's read at a million weddings all the time, that is love. And that includes accountability. And that includes honoring those around you. It includes honoring your body. It includes honoring the body within you. If you're pregnant, like all of those things stand to be true. The only thing I would clarify though, too, is we probably see sin a bit differently because I very concisely define it as anything that causes harm. So if I see a relationship that is edifying for two people that they have determined that there's enthusiastic consent in the midst of it, that there is not sin there, there's not sin with being LGBTQ. So there would be certain disagreements there may be. Like, I know that's a whole different topic. But yeah, I think I think the, the purpose of life is to learn from your mistakes, holding on to divinity's hand, asking for that word, releasing bitterness, giving free goodness and acceptance of others in their place and not accepting like you're just allowing whatever, but everything like love is also boundaries. Love is also calling people out. So that love is very expansive. And then the sin to me is, well, where is harm? Where are we cause like causing harm? Where are we calling out harm? Which is interesting because I believe that's something you and I are both doing when it comes to abortion. Yeah, thank you for that. So just kind of a follow-up question. I I thought it was really interesting how you spoke about God. When you talk about that, you mentioned God and spirit and divinity. Can you just flesh out a little bit more about how you see God and how you describe God using that particular those particular terms? Yeah, I like using different terminology because I really believe words hit people differently. And as a writer, words are really, really valuable to me. For example, some people might have had an awful experience with father and they might find comfort in calling God father, or they might find horror and fear in calling God father. So, you know, then to give someone permission to be like, well, then maybe God strikes you better, but they're all the same to me. I usually like using divinity as an all encompassing term. And that to me is God divine, you know, everything that is undescribable and inexplicable um, about divinity. I like calling the divine because again, unfortunately, because Christianity is so enmeshed with toxic theology and other people's sin, whether it be all of the sexual abuse cases that have come out, like with Ravi Zacharias, like there is very currently tons of sin within the church. So with that, even God, Father God could be very upsetting for someone to hear and they might not be able to connect to that. So for me, as someone who has been very brokenhearted and torn down by the churches that I've been at, I find much more comfort and solace in calling God divine. And also divine doesn't have a pronoun. And I love that as well, because I don't think God has 
male genitalia. <laughs> I think God is more expansive than that. So it's all semantics to me, but that's what I mean. I hope that clarifies. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. And and I just wanted to point out, like, I feel like where we do really relate to each other is just a care for women and particularly like the abuse situations within the church. I mean, that it absolutely breaks my heart that power would ever be used in that way over women and covering abuse and, you know, just all of the above. Like it, it is, it's very heartbreaking and I desire for much more to be done as far as just protecting women and, you know, for women who have experienced those abuse situations to be healed. I, you know, I'm, I'm not at the point where I think the church should be thrown out altogether. I think the Bible's clear about the importance of the church, but there is a lot of healing that needs to be done in a lot of situations. Yeah, the one thing I want to share is that I was told by a friend of mine that she went to a church where a teenage girl got pregnant with her boyfriend and the pastor forced her to come on stage and repent for her sin of premarital sex while her boyfriend, who had impregnated her, sat in the pews. Because so much of the narrative of purity culture has been, we cause our brothers to stumble. We are the the Jezebels that cause these things to happen. And the male accountability has historically not been there. And you could say this is an outlier situation, but according to my audience and my community, it is absolutely not. And to end that story... Another girl in the congregation got pregnant within the next year or so, and she had an abortion to avoid the humiliation of going on stage to repent for her sin publicly. So this is what happens when we don't honor women and we don't hold men to the fire and ask that their responsibility and the 50% role it takes to impregnate somebody is not held accountable and is not called to, to the same accountability as a woman. And I would argue it shouldn't be accountability. You shouldn't have to bear your child like a scarlet letter. It should be a celebration. Wow, that's a heartbreaking story. And that's, it's horrifying that thing. I mean, that's not something that should happen within our churches. And yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's not pro-life by any means. And again, I, and I do want to point out too, I really appreciate your comment about not holding women to be solely accountable. It is a 50%, you know, partnership in this, and it's not solely on the women's responsibility, but, you know, unfortunately I, I believe partly what's led to that honestly is a common statement you'll hear in pro-choice culture is my body, my choice. And I think, and a lot of times that's been drilled into men's heads. And just from my personal experience and what I've seen on the sidewalk is, you know, I'll have a conversation with the father of the child and I'll urge him, you know, to, to consider sparing the life of his baby and offer resources and things like that. And he says, you know, he completely avoids responsibility because he says, you know, it's her body, her choice. And I think, unfortunately, that's actually a symptom of, you know, supposedly advocating for a woman's autonomy. It has turned into a lack of male responsibility. A pro-choice position is a God-glorifying position for a Christian to hold. These questions are worded really funny to me. (laughs) I'm like, God honoring? I don't, I wouldn't say that. For me, a pro-choice position as it currently stands is the most 
honorable, humane, and to me, Christian position to hold. And the reason is because of the policymakers behind the legislation and what the legislation actually does. So with pro-life policy as it stands right now, you have people like Mike Pence closing down Planned Parenthoods as if that's a win. Meanwhile, not paying attention to the numbers and the facts that statistically abortion rates skyrocket when you change your education to abstinence only. It shows abstinence only only delays sexual activity in teenagers for about six months tops. So it doesn't have any long lasting effect. And your religion doesn't even really matter either. Women that are Christian, men that are Christian end up having premarital sex at the same rates as their counterparts. But they will have sex without a condom because they didn't want to, quote, premeditate sin. They will get STDs because they haven't had any education on how they get an STD, how to protect themselves. So pro-life policy robs our society of the tools that it would take to actually prevent abortion. And then when you look at the numbers, pro-life policy statistically causes more abortion, therefore causes more death than pro-choice policy makers. I know that wasn't the intent of the people that are in the pro-life camp, but unfortunately, as long as we continue to ignore and put blinders on and just be like satiated with the terminology, like if you walk into your voting booth and you're like, I feel good about myself, I did pro-life because so-and-so held up a Bible upside down out of a church that he just gassed and said he was pro-life. So I did a good job. I don't mean to get sassy or political, but I mean, give me a break. I know a lot of conservative Christians that were really horrified by that situation as well. So no shade to either party. But um, you are not ultimately doing what you say you are hoping to do, which is to prevent abortion. So when I research and look into pro-choice policy makers and what they are doing, they are working on preventing abortion. They are working on more concisely preventing unwanted pregnancy, which can lead to abortion. So I so deeply appreciate the work that you are doing in the world. But at the same time, if I, I see it in my mind's eye, almost like this tree with these rotted roots of this society who is living in sin of our forefathers, the sin of not providing health care for those who need it, the sin of allowing people to rot away in poverty and need, and the sin of letting children go hungry in a nation that is one of the most thriving in our entire world, the sin of not empowering people with education that they need to prevent. All of these things to me are rotted roots in this tree. Bible talks about look at the roots and you have to pull them out. And then off of the tree is the women and the men coming into these clinics. And I see you tending to the fruit and being like, let me help. I can grab the fruit. Like I can do something about this. And that to me is so admirable and so beautiful. And at the same time, what pro-choice policy does is get to the roots so that eventually the tree will spring up with good fruit. The tree will spring up with resources, with people getting pregnant only if they want to be pregnant. And we have examples of these policies working in other nations like 
In the Netherlands, for example, they have some of the lowest abortion rates in the entire world. And the reason is not because they criminalize it. El Salvador has one of the highest rates of pregnancy in the world, and there are women in prison for having abortions. So it is not about criminalizing and legislating women's bodies. It is about getting to those roots, those systematic issues. I also talked about the uh, adoption and foster care system. All of these are root issues that, again, pro-choice policy goes into because pro-choice people are also usually the ones that are advocating for climate science and protecting our planet, which also saves the lives of people. They're advocating for social programs that help people that are in impoverished situations and all over, to me, look more humane in many, many different areas because they are considering the least of these. So in the most roundabout way, I suppose, yes, I agree with the statement that was just posed. <laughs> yeah, so I... I do not agree with this statement. You know, just thinking about specifically abortion or supporting abortion, I I can't, just looking at the words God glorifying, I can't think of a single situation in which having an abortion or supporting an abortion would bring glory to God. In fact, I, I actually believe that abortion is quite the opposite of the sacrificial love that God displayed in the in the gospel. There's a quote, and I can't remember who said it right now, but um, you know, it's it's just the idea that abortion says, I'll sacrifice your life for mine. And Jesus' death on the cross says, I will sacrifice my life for yours. You know, not only that, it, it does not glorify God to take a human life that is made in his image, um, no matter the age or the stage of that human life. But that being said, those of us on the pro-life side, kind of like what you were saying, also need to consider if our words and deeds around the topic of abortion are truly God glorifying. I think there's a lot of speech, a lot of conversation, a lot of sidewalk counseling out there that I would not consider to be God glorifying. Um, We have to think about, are we really bringing honor to God through what and how we're saying and what we're doing when it comes to pro-life ministry, how we speak to individuals pursuing abortion, how we share the gospel with those who are post-abortive, and how we offer care and support for those who are abortion vulnerable or abortion minded. You know, while while this truth is God glorifying, we also must bring him glory through love and word and deed. And um, so I definitely think where we agree is we see a deep need to do more for the care aspect. And, and personally, I see that as coming through the church. And that's what my ministry advocates for is churches being trained and equipped to wrap their arms around families, to bring them in, to really just be the hands and feet of bringing people in and caring for them in whatever situation they may be in and just surrounding that with gospel hope. So what I was thinking is, you know, you're talking about the sacrificial love and my question becomes how much are we demanding that someone sacrifice? The sacrifice, quote unquote, of, you know, an affluent woman who's married, living in Newport Beach, her not having an abortion is a different sacrifice and a different story than a black woman who is, I think, seven or nine times more likely to die in childbirth than her Newport Beach counterpart. 
and then the sacrifice of the welfare state and imprisonment, the imprisoned industrial complex that her child might get stuck in because of the circumstances that she's in, the unhealthy, unedible, nutrient-less food that is provided to her children, her sacrifice is astronomical. And that, to me, is the problem. And I think that also then poses the question of, first of all, do I see churches doing what you're saying? No, absolutely not. Maybe every once in a while I'm at inbox, I'll get some outlier church that's like, oh, we're in Kentucky and we're doing this. And I'm like, wow, amazing. I'm so glad. Do I see the mega churches in Los Angeles being the hand and feet of Jesus? Absolutely not. Do I see their fog machines? Do I see their preachers and sneakers appearances? Do I see their mega mansions? Do I see their private jets? Yes, I do. And that to me is deplorable. That is not the hands and feet of Jesus. And they're all guilty of that sin of greed. They're all guilty of using shame and fear as a way to impose their belief system on others instead of actually doing what needs to be done. And again, that really includes making sure that Black women and women of color are not worried that they may sacrifice their life like Jesus in order to have that baby. That is an outright atrocity. So I don't know, it's hard to watch so many conservative Christian churches have their money in the pockets of these politicians going to, quote, pray for them in the Oval Office and all basically just like shake hands and make alliances with each other without doing anything in the real world except lip service. We closed down X number of Planned Parenthoods. Congratulations. What do your numbers look like? They're higher than ever. And something needs to be done about that. I don't see it being done. And and that's why I love your ministry and I love what you're doing. Although I'd say I'm not fully uh, acquainted with how you go about it. I did a bit of research and it looks lovely from what I've seen. (laughs) But, you know, is that your responsibility? Like, you know, we in the progressive Christian side, so to speak, are accused of being these socialists to whatever the whole narrative. But it's like. Well, then who's who's taking care of the poor? Who's healing the sick? Who's making sure these women aren't dying on the on the beds? No one. And that's what we need to ask ourselves if we're not going to vote in the appropriate manner that saves lives. And if we're not going to do it at church, then like, how are we expecting it to happen? How do we prevent abortion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you there. I, you know, I love that you mentioned the statistic with black women that honestly, That is one of the core reasons why I became a doula is because I want to be able to advocate for all women in that situation. But I've seen those statistics and I've done some writing just on that and how it, it breaks my heart. It really does. And I'm, I'm very passionate about, you know, every woman having access to support and advocacy and birth and especially, you know, women of color. I think it's so important because, yeah, I, I think we wholeheartedly agree that more has to be done to prevent abortion and that there has to be that care aspect. We can't just ask women to keep their babies and then that's it. Like, you know, what's after that? you know, that there has to be more in the equation there. And I'm passionate about 
equipping churches to do that and making sure that, you know, like you said, that churches are being the hands and feet of Jesus and not just, like you say, fog machines and mansions. I just moved to Indianapolis and we're in the process of finding a church and it's been so hard to find one that is on the same page as I am with just being active, you know, more than just speaking and what they say, but actually being the hands of feet of Jesus and caring for others. And so... We share that passion for sure. Human development begins at fertilization. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a science-believing Christian, so that's true. I also believe spirit enters body at the moment of conception. To me, though, this is always getting into the weeds. Like One of the things that I always bring up when I'm having an abortion conversation or a debate scenario is that when we get into the weeds of morality, it doesn't actually do much to prevent abortion in real time. If you can get someone to stand in that place on a moral stance, that's great. But again, if we look at the statistics and how often Christian people and even couples will decide to have an abortion together, the biggest reasons people do it, I think it's up to like 97 or 98% is because of being worried about finances, being worried that you're not going to be able to care for that child that, that arrives. So I do think it's valuable to play with the unknown. And it, and it really is unknown. It's one of life's great mysteries of where are souls before here? Where do they go after? I, again, wrote in my book On Her Knees that I actually talked to a Christian prophet couple from Georgia. Conservative Christians would never be aligned with pro-choice policy, as far as I can tell. But when they were counseling me and speaking prophetically, they were talking about my daughter lingering around my body. And I found that really stunning because whether or not you believe that to be true, it's a proposed to me that what if there is an afterlife? What if there is something beyond this that we don't understand? What if you make a choice, but it isn't something that's a nail on the coffin that the spirit can never enter again? What if the baby finds another portal? There's all these questions that are just a part of the great beyond, a part of divinity's knowledge that we likely won't have access to until we die or until we're there, or until we have some experience with that on our own. But I did feel the presence of my daughter after my abortion. I do believe she found another way here. And again, that doesn't suppose that we take all, quote, responsibility off of people and their choices of whether or not to have an abortion. I would never say that to someone to be like, so don't worry about it, because it was the single most traumatic and unhappy experience I've ever had in my entire life, making that choice, being abused into making that choice. But Obviously, biologically, yes, the baby starts forming immediately. And I would say as a person who's been pregnant twice, I do sense the spirit immediately. Yeah. So, you know, between making medical decisions for my youngest daughter and helping my doula clients make evidence-based decisions, I spent a lot of time, you know, reading through medical journals and various studies. And um, I read this really interesting one lately. It's called Personhood Status of the Human Zygote, Embryo, and Fetus. And it's a study that was done in 2017 by two doctors, uh, Miklovic and Flamen. And it was just a really interesting study that said practically all medical professionals agree that the human zygote contains all necessary 
genetic programming for development associated with mechanical function, rational thought, and cognitive sapient awareness. Um, it's all there. It just has to develop. And, you know, just because someone has been born also doesn't mean that it has fully developed. I often question my five-year-old's rational thought and cognitive sapient awareness, um, or even my two-year-old. Um, but, you know, I, I really see it as everything's there from conception and we just continue to grow and develop over time. But we are fully persons, fully humans um, from the moment of conception. And so I, I think, you know, a lot of times there's this disagreement, you know, now that scientists are on the same page about human, like being a human being at conception, now there's just this debate of personhood that, um, you know, being human in and of itself does not necessarily equate to personhood. And there's just, there's a lot of ambiguity around that. I feel like when people make that distinction, it's like, okay, but then logically where do we become persons? And like, there's not as clear of a starting point where I believe when we die, our soul leaves our body, our bodies die, our cells die. And then since that's the case, then birth must also be a specific moment in time when cells are created and our souls therefore enter our bodies. Yeah, I agree. And again, I just usually state that this is getting into the weeds for me and almost becomes irrelevant beyond the conversation of like if we were just having dinner and drinking wine and exchanging our thoughts on it because I know it is more important that we're both trying to save lives here but that to me is really concerning because when we're only focusing on that topic it goes back to then are we going to legislate women's bodies and force things based upon what likely a room full of white dudes is going to have to say about when that personhood begins I know our system is becoming more diverse but as of today the majority of our laws have been written by exclusively one people group with no representation from anyone else. So it's deeply concerning to me that if we somehow legislate and pinpoint personhood, that that will just lead to more harm, pain, and women being imprisoned for having abortions, which I, I am absolutely in disagreement about. Yeah. I mean, I, I do believe that abortion is ending a human life. And, you know, I, I do believe that women should be held accountable for that. But I also don't believe it should be just women. I believe it should be the man equally. And, you know, the abortionist, him or herself equally. And it should not kind of like what we talked about before. It's not 100% on her. That's hard too, though, because then the woman in Newport Beach will never be thrown in jail because she will always have the resources to have a child. The black woman in Compton will be more likely to be imprisoned under that sort of theory. Yeah, I mean, that is true. But that's where I think, yeah, there just has to be kind of equal responsibility and equal, yeah, just an equal response for everybody when it comes to that. All right, well, that wraps up part one of this conversation. Be sure to stay tuned for the next part, and that's going to be coming out really soon. And if this podcast, this conversation inspired you, encouraged you, challenged you, please leave a review wherever you're listening to your podcast. Every review helps. Just take one minute. It doesn't have to be long. Leave a review. The more reviews we have on this podcast, the more people we get to reach and impact. 
And remember, truth is out there. You'll want to join us for the next episode to keep exploring.